You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey again, I'm Dean, pastor at City Church. We're jumping back into the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, where we were going verse by verse through the book uh, before the lockdown hit. And once we all had to watch from home uh, for a season, for actually a long season, uh, we uh, just kind of tweaked some stuff in terms of what we thought our church family needed to hear. So we took a break from 1 Corinthians. We're jumping right back in. I guess we kind of call this uh, 1 Corinthians season two. Uh, We started with one through four, and now we are in chapter five. And the thing about going through books of the Bible is when you get there, you just kind of just where it is is where it is. And you go, you can't duck any hard passages. Uh, So this morning is actually one of those little tougher passages uh, that we're going to tackle because it is in the scriptures and it matters. And as we get to understand this letter even more, it's critical that we understand what it is God has to say to us. And the reason, if you're new to church or kind of checking out church for the first time in a long time, whatever it might be, uh, we believe the way that God speaks to us primarily is through the scriptures. It is through his word that we understand who God is, what he's like, what he expects of us. Uh, So we think the scriptures are elevated above anything else, tradition, opinion, preference, whatever it might be. Uh, So if you disagree with anything, you disagree with the Bible, not with me, and that's a great strategy uh, for me. So it makes life a little bit easier. Uh, So we're just gonna be Bible people around here, and that's what we're committed to. So I'm gonna pray for us, then we'll jump into 1 Corinthians chapter five and just keep rolling through that book uh, for the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word that you've given it to us. Uh, What an act of grace that we have the scriptures, the words of our God available to us in our Bibles. We ask we'll be found faithful with those and that they will be real in our minds and hearts. I thank you for what we've experienced this morning with the Victoria's baptism, with uh, the Kellys up here uh, before their church family. We're just grateful for how you're working in people's lives. Lord, we just ask for more of it. We ask that you uh, be with all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today, that we'll be united in Christ. And we ask that you keep the enemy out of this place and allow everything I say to be of your scripture and that will bring you honor and glory. We thank you for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, My buddy was at Disney World a few weeks ago and he's a big Auburn fan. So just like a lot of college football fans do, he was decked out in all his Auburn attire. You know, Auburn guy probably likes cows a lot and farming and those type of things. And uh, so, so he's walking around Disney World, you know, Magic Kingdom, decked out, and they kind of get to a little cluster of people, and he sees somebody who's an FSU fan. And the FSU fan has on an FSU t-shirt, just normal kind of stuff, and she has on pretty short shorts and has, forgive the visual here, but has this big, huge Seminole head tattoo right here on the thigh. It's like you can't get the Wakulla out of the girl, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like, I mean, it's, like it's, it's, it's right there. And so she, she looks over and sees him, and she says, War Eagle! And my Auburn buddy's like, yeah, yeah, I got to go up. Auburn's my, my favorite team. He's just kind of looking at her. And she's like, well, I did, you know, grad school at Florida State, so I like Florida State, but I, I did my undergrad at Auburn, and Auburn's my number one team. I'm a huge, a huge Auburn fan. That's where my allegiance are. We go to the games and everything. And he's just looking at her like, you have the Seminole tat head tattooed on your upper thigh for all to see. I'm a little confused right now, as, as you probably are too. And here's the, here's the reality. Oftentimes what we claim our allegiance to is not what's actually marking our lives. There's confusion over who we say we're about, that being the Lord, and actually what our life portrays on a regular basis. How many people in our city claim to be Christians, 
simply because they'd been to church before, they were raised Catholic, or they you know, went to the Baptist church with grandma when they were kids, or they're good, they think they're good people, they're just not of another religion, or they're not atheists, so they claim to be Christians, yet outside of liking some of Jesus' holidays, or an occasional prayer when something goes really bad for their family that scares them, they're not much interested in things of the faith. But the confusion lies when we claim loyalty to one, being the Lord, but mark our lives with things that don't resemble that even for a moment. And that's what's been happening in the city of Corinth that caused Paul to write the letter of 1 Corinthians. There was much confusion taking place as people who were professing Christ, they were members of churches. They were even actively going to those churches, but were living lives that were very much in contradiction to the faith that they claimed. So my friend John Lehman wrote this, Jonathan Lehman, he said, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that a Christian never sins. We'd all be in big trouble then, wouldn't we? It's that when he does sin, he confesses it and fights against sinning again. He takes God's side against his sin instead of sin's side against God. But what happens when the Christian acts like a non-Christian? In what Lehman describes in that quote, where they refuse to acknowledge sin, They refuse to agree with God over what sin actually is and what should be done with it. They refuse to overcome their sin by God's grace and power and choose to repent, turn from their sin and actually turn to God. What happens when the person refuses to do that while still claiming the name of Christ all along the way? In the Corinthian church, this is exactly what was taking place. Where we find ourselves this week is in a pretty intense chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting in verse one, just working through it. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And that kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles, which is unbelievers in this context. He's like, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. It's like even the non-Christians think that's kind of weird and kind of strange. With your stepmom, woo, okay. You thought the Bible was boring. Y'all buckle up. He says, and you're arrogant. Like, you're just kind of shrugging your shoulders about it and go, hey, you know, everybody does their own thing. You know, God loves everybody. Who am I to judge? You're just arrogant. Instead, shouldn't you be filled with grief over this? Not only filled with grief, but he says, and remove from your congregation the one who did this. Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. Paul spent time with them. And now he's still with them in spirit, meaning like they have his letters, they have his mentorship memories, and the lessons he's taught them. As one who's present with you in this way, I've already pronounced a judgment on the one who's been doing such a thing. He says, when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, I'm with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. He says, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of our Lord. There's a lot going on here in those first first five verses. And it sounds really intense, even sounds harsh and maybe even judgmental. Incest is being committed, a form of it. And this, what was happening with the person sleeping with his father's wife was actually against the Roman and Jewish law. So it's prohibited amongst all people, but it's ongoing what's taking place here. This is not someone who made a mistake one time and was apologetic for it and, and confessed their sin and, and got right back in the church and was just you know, trying to live for Christ. This is not someone that just messed up, who made a mistake, who had a, you know, just a, a momentary lapse of sin 
and understood it, acknowledged it, and, and had the help to get back on with life and following Jesus. This is ongoing here. And the church, as Paul says, is arrogant about it. Let's work through this text. Paul calls them to mourn and remove the man. In verse two, he says, shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? And then he says to actually hand them over to Satan. Well, what's, what does that mean? Is he getting ready to like build some kind of fire and have some like freaky satanic ceremony and hand the guy over to like, no, that's not at all what it is. Hand over to Satan means to the world, to those, to the, the realm outside of God. To outside of, we could say, these walls. Hand them over to the world because that's what they're acting like and are living in. And there's precedent here, 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's not an isolated event. Even if it was, it would still be scripture and still be true. Uh, but it's not, there's precedent here. So for context, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul wrote, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you. So that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight. You remember what I taught you so you can live out the Christian faith. You can live for Christ in your city, lead your church well. Timothy's pastoring a young church. He says, having faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked the faith. Then he names names. Among are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've delivered to Satan, so they may be taught not to blaspheme. You see, this sin here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, even the unbelievers thought this was bad. Even the unbelievers went, whoa, they're Christians and they're, and they're doing, he's doing what? And the church is cool with it? And they think it's fine. And what would a modern day of that look like? It'd almost be like if, you know, uh, oh, he's this like really racist person. Like everybody in town knows that he's a racist and oh, he's a member of that church. Even the unbeliever goes, eh. like, <laughs> that was a weird noise. <laughs> even, even the, I'm sorry. Even the, even the unbeliever's like, that's not normal. Like that's not okay for somebody who claims to be a Christian. What's, what's happening here? Oh yeah, he go, he's a Christian. He, he goes to that church and every time I see him, he's just like dropping like F-bombs around kids and around people. Like, like something's off here. Even the unbeliever knows that and is confused. And Paul says there should be grief in the church over this person's ongoing sinful lifestyle. There should be sadness that's taking place, even more than judgment. There should be a sadness taking place as a result of this. This is Ezra, the Old Testament prophet. Look at what he, his experience was when people were in deep sin and not turning from their sin, when the people of God were acting like they never heard of God. It says in Ezra chapter 10 that Ezra then went from the house of God and walked to the chamber of Jehonanan, son of Elijah, where he spent the night. He did not eat food or drink water because he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. I mean, how about a deep love for God's people? and a broken heart over people that are refusing to live for the God they claim to believe in. And I'm the kind of guy that like, you know, I might not eat after a New England Patriots loss. <laughs> like, what if, not that this is saying that every person, this is descriptive, not prescriptive, he's not saying that every person has to do that as a result of people's sin, but what if people living sinful lifestyles, what about my own life when I get trapped into sin? What if that caused more mourning in my soul over something as insignificant as who won the game. Alistair Begg, who's a pastor in Ohio, said this, that grief rather than judgment 
should motivate our response to sin. If not, we are Pharisees. So Paul's not saying you should have a judgmental attitude towards this person. Instead, he's saying you should be grieving. You should have grief in your heart and grief in your soul for what's taking place in your church. Or if it doesn't affect us at all, we could say there'll actually be no action taken. You won't do anything or say anything about it. So why is this actually taking place? Why 1 Corinthians 5? Like, what's the point of this? Is this a little too extreme, a little too out of control, a little overboard here? No, what's happening is he's doing this and writing this for the good of the individual because he cares about the person trapped in ongoing sin, but also he cares for the church, the good of the church family. Verse 6 you're boasting, and we're not exactly sure what they were boasting in, but it seems like they were just very arrogant about it, very nonchalant, almost like, hey, come as you are, doesn't matter, do whatever, you know, God loves us, we're all forgiven, let's go, kind of attitude, just arrogant about sin, arrogant towards God as if God doesn't care. He says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so you, may be, so you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what seems really wordy, doesn't it? Like what's happening there? Well, this is an Old Testament reference to make a New Testament point. And he's using the feasts of the Passover and the feasts of unleavened bread as imagery, as visuals for them. See, during these feasts at this time, all leaven was to be removed from the houses during the Passover and during the feast of unleavened bread. No leaven whatsoever in the house. Nothing leavened also should be eaten during this time. So leaven here in this contemporary application in the first century from what's happening before to, to use the, something a lot of people would understand at that time, leaven here stands for what is sinful. And if one allows a little yeast into the lump of dough, it will impact the entire thing. And Paul is worried about the leaven spreading to the whole entire church and the whole entire congregation. Tom Schreiner wrote this, since Christ has been offered as a Passover sacrifice, the church actually already is unleavened. Based on Christ's work, we are holy and clean before God. So where does Paul turn them? In his really concern and rebuke of them? He turns them to the good news of Jesus. He's saying, hey guys, you don't have to work to be right with God. You already are right with God because of what Jesus has done for you. Like God so loves you that he didn't punish you as your sins deserved. He punished Christ in your place, the one who has risen again, the reason why we have church in the first place here. And he goes, the issue is that you're living like this isn't true of you. See, since this is true, we should not live out the, we should now, I should say, live out the reality that Jesus has taken the old leaven, our sin, and he has taken it upon himself. See, the call to clean out the leaven is based on who Christ has redeemed us to be. This isn't rules for the sake of rules. This isn't legalism. This is, this is who God has made you. Now, not just live that yourselves, but shine that light and that new reality of change out into the rest of the world. See, that's why gospel centrality is so important. And by that, we mean the work of Christ on our behalf is what drives our entire understanding of the scriptures. It's common to think, even if you were raised in a, in a good Bible preaching church, it's still common to think that basically 
the gospel, like we're talking about the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Christ, that it's just an evangelistic message. It's just something you say to unbelievers to help them understand God's love for them so they may become Christians. And yes, that is true, but it's also for believers as well. Tim Keller says that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A through Z. My friend JD, who's a pastor in North Carolina, he says the gospel is not the diving board, it's the entire pool. It's how we understand all of the Christian life. It's not just the foyer, it's the whole house. It's not just the appetizers. I, mean, I love me some mozzarella cheese sticks and some potato skins and some bread to dip before the meal, don't get me wrong, but I want the whole meal. And he's saying the gospel actually is that for us. So unbelievers and believers both need the gospel equally but for different reasons. The unbeliever needs the gospel so they will hear and receive and respond and be saved from their sins by trusting in Christ. The believer needs the gospel to live, to live the Christian life. So what's happening here is Paul is reminding us that grace precedes demand. Grace precedes demand. He's acknowledging to them that the leaven is no, the, the image of the leaven, the sin, is not a reality in their lives anymore, positionally with God, because Jesus was the Passover lamb for them. He took on the death that they deserved as a punishment for their sin, that he has freed them and forgiven them and made them new. They are exempt. They are no longer under condemnation, as the Bible says. So now he's saying, because of that, now how shall we live? He's saying it's not like this. Even the unbelievers know that's not how Christians live. So what's really going on in this text? It sounds very harsh. It sounds kind of rough to throw someone out, right? Isn't the opposite of what church should be? Like where's the love? Where's the grace? Where's the mercy? See, those are really good questions when you hear this text. See, the 21st century American church is so far removed from 1 Corinthians 5 because we're so oftentimes indifferent towards sin. As long as it doesn't directly affect us or your own personal family. That something like this text sounds like crazy talk. It sounds ridiculous. Like, aren't, aren't we all sinners, you might say? Who, who are we to pass judgment on others? And In fact, didn't Jesus tell us not to judge? See, the Bible is just kind of one big contradiction, isn't it? I mean, surely the most loving thing to do would be to just keep someone there and to be in their life and to help them. Isn't it, don't they say like you should hate the sin but love the sinner? Isn't that how it's supposed to go? Paul explains this. He says in verse nine, I wrote to you in a letter, so he's communicated with them before, corresponded before, he's reminding them not to associate with sexually immoral people. Then he goes, and I gotta remind you of this big disclaimer I gave you. Verse 10, I did not mean the immoral people of this world. I'm not talking about unbelievers. I'm not talking about non-Christians or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters because otherwise you'd have to leave the world. Right? What would you do then? But actually, I wrote, not, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, as in a Christian, and is sexually immoral or greedy, or an idolater, or verbally abusive, or a drunkard, a swindler, he says, don't even eat with such a person. And he goes, hey, what business is it of mine to judge outsiders, to judge non-Christians? That's not my job. Don't you judge those who are inside? 
God's the one who judges outsiders. That's not my role. I'm not God. I'm not the judge over other people. Because remove the evil person from among you. Oh, I just thought you said we didn't judge. Oh, he goes, whoa, whoa. God prohibits us from judging unbelievers. That's his job, not ours. And believe me, he promises us it will happen. But we are called to evaluate other believers. And that's very different. There's a big difference between making a judgment and actually being judgmental. We make judgments all the time. I hope you do. About the daily affairs of your life, about associations, about what's safe, what's not. You make judgments all the time, but being judgmental is a posture. It's arrogant. It's looking down on someone else. Paul's like, hey, just so we're clear, I'm not telling you to disassociate with people who aren't Christians. You have to leave the world for that, and it's also contrary to our mission of taking God's love to the world. But moving from the New Testament letter to kind of a contemporary understanding is is not always that straightforward. But the danger is always that we instead will hide ourselves behind difficult passages that make us uncomfortable or action points that we don't think are are really right for us. So we need to be clear on what Paul says. He tells tells the Corinthians not to associate, verses 9 and 11, with someone who is named a brother or sister but is actually a sexually immoral person. Sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or abusive or a drunkard, a dishonest person. He says, don't even eat with those people. Now it's important to know, Paul is not speaking about someone who has a lapse in judgment or a time in their life where they mess up, make a mistake, sin. If that was the case, we'd all be in huge trouble and there'd be no one standing in this pulpit. He's not talking about those moments where we give in to the flesh, we give in to our old lives. He's talking about people whose identity are actually marked by these behaviors. Because he actually labels them a drunkard, an idolater, immoral, an abuser. That is, they engage in habitual, unrepentant, sinful behavior. The Christian who gets drunk and repents or commits an act of dishonesty and repents is not in view. That's not who he's talking about here because that's not a label for you. That's not who you are. That's not your identity. You're somebody who made a mistake. In that mistake, what shows you really are a child of God is you repent. You come back to the Lord. This is a person, rather, who has, we could say, two competing identities, maybe known as a brother or sister in Christ, but their behavior identifies them as an unbeliever. So genuine believers, Paul says, are not to associate with such people. Because this Corinthian church, this is a letter written to an actual church, is tolerating a case of blatant sexual immorality that everyone knew about right in front of them among their church members. I mean, not only should a church not overlook any kind of sexual immorality, but this type of immorality was even frowned upon by the surrounding culture. A guy was sleeping with his stepmom ongoing and a member of the church like it was nothing. And everybody knew, if that was you, what would the church be communicating by doing nothing about how they cared about your heart and about your life? So a few application points here. Number one, toleration of sin is sinful. It's not just a sin to sin, it's a sin to tolerate sin. Let it go on in your midst. 
without saying anything, doing anything, pretending it's all fine. The book of Isaiah chapter five, I think it's verse 20, says, woe is you who calls good evil and evil good. Number two, I'm just a simple guy talking simple language, so non-Christians are rolling their eyes. How often do people leave the church, be gone from the church for a long period of time? I don't mean lockdown, I mean just like in general. And a lot of times we ask them why, what will they say? It's because Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. That's this. That's what's happening in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul has a real burden about what it's communicating to the rest of the community when the church people are just like the people who aren't Christians. That's the burden here he has. But there's a crisis here in their church. And the gospel witness is at stake. Now there's no suggestion in this passage that this action of basically excommunicating this person for a period of time will lead to this person ultimately surrendering to the Lord and coming back, but that's definitely what's in play here. Is there one protecting the church from the influence of the world, but they also have a heart for this person to come back to know God, to come back to an actual life with the Lord, of walking with Jesus. It's not gonna be felt as love to the person, because they're gonna be defensive and throw out the judgmental card and all these, and point all the faults in your life and all those kind of things, but it's not loving to allow someone to remain in sin and act like them and God are just fine. Three drastic times call for what appear to be drastic actions. There were drastic times in Corinth. So handing this person over, and also Jesus gives us a guide in Matthew 18 of how to approach somebody. So if they were following that, which I know they were, they went to this person several times like with witnesses, they're like going to sit down with this person to talk them through what's going on, not trying to get rid of the person from the church, but talking to them, and the person just refused to repent, refused to change. So it's not a drastic measure to call Christians to live like Christians. It's also not a drastic measure to care about someone's soul. The person who refuses to ever repent, we have to start wondering whether or not they know Jesus or not. Paul wrote this, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Walk in love as Christ also loved us, and here's the grace before the demand, and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Because of all these things, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed shall not even be heard of among you as is proper for the saints. And saints means believers. All Christians are saints. God makes us that way in our salvation. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God or of Christ. That's what marks your identity. If that's who you are, then you're deeply confused, tragically, if you think it makes you a Christian, still. See, drastic times in this Corinthian church, maybe, just maybe, these measures will get the person to repent. Probably not at first again. They're going to be mad. They're going to throw a judgment card. But eventually, I mean, how many times have you had conversations with somebody where they were mad at you at first, then six months later came back and said, thank you for that. You were right. You were the only person in my ear who was telling me, no, it's not okay for you to leave your wife for no reason. Like, no, it's not okay for this relationship to be in place. You were the one saying that I was stubborn. Finally, I realized that God's word is better than what my opinion might be about something. 
Number four, if you think this is harsh, I ask, I ask this question. What should be tolerated in the church? I don't mean who can show up and sit here on a Sunday. We're open for everybody, okay, to come attend a service here. But to join a church as a member, like what... If an ongoing sexual sin and arrogance towards it, like, if you're like whatever, then, then what, what should be tolerated? Like, should someone who's in the KKK be allowed to join our church? Should they? If somebody's in a membership, I'm talking about non-repentant. Somebody comes to our membership meeting is in the KKK, and we are told that this person's in the KKK, and we sit down with the person and say, hey, unless you totally repent of the KKK, leave it, denounce it, you can't be a member of our church. Would you think that was extreme? Would you? I would hope not. Imagine if you found out that this church down the street had KKK members who were members of the church. What would you think of that church? And also, what would we be saying to the actual person in the KKK? Oh yeah, come on in, you're fine. What message is that communicating? About where he stands with God and his lifestyle and his choices. Like, what should be tolerated in the church? You can, go, you can go on the list. Somebody who's abusing their wife and everyone knows about it. Should they be allowed to be a member of the church while that continues? Give me a break. Number five, unrepentant sin is an issue of gospel misunderstanding or of unbelief. So the issue here is not just stubbornness. Either they're not getting the gospel, they're not understanding who they are in Christ, their worth in him, or they're believing lies. That there's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him, or they gotta go around God, not to him, for all the things they're looking for in their life. Number six, stay in the world, but stay away from hypocrisy. I mean, think about the company Jesus kept. It wasn't with religious people. It wasn't with the cream of the crop, righteous, moral people. We stay in the world. But think about what Jesus called out. What angered Jesus? Hypocrisy. Double standards. So I think this, this passage calls us to reach out to the lost but reject the hypocrite. Reach out to the lost but reject the hypocrite. Paul has a concern that our holiness as the people of God might be corrupted in some way. It comes at us all the time. But it's not often, he's saying, in this case, in Corinth, by those who are outside of the church, it's happening by those who are inside. So Paul says is the thing that you really have to look for isn't as much the heathens as it is the hypocrites. And this next one's really important. Number seven, examine yourself before evaluating others. Examine yourself before evaluating others. If our approach to someone is ever, I think I'm really good and you're not, then there's a big problem out of the gate. Remember, it's from grief. It's from concern, not from judgment. It's like when you ride on an airplane during the taxi period when you first get on the plane. And the flight attendant, if you, if you fly ever, you've heard this a million times, you can almost memorize the speech. They tell you if you know, the cabin reaches a certain level of pressure and we need oxygen, when the mask drops down, Make sure you put your own mask on before you go and help your child or someone else put their mask on. Now, I have flight anxiety, so if that mask dropped, I'd die instantly, so I'd be irrelevant, it wouldn't matter. Uh, but but the, principle, the principle is there. 
put your own mask on before you assist somebody else with theirs because if you're not able to breathe, you're not going to help somebody else be able to breathe. In the same way as Christians, we look at our own lives because that allows us then to realize that we're not perfect either. We have sins and flaws that we're so sinful it took the death of Jesus to forgive us. And that allows us to have the right posture in approaching someone. Here's what Jesus said. Who do you look at? Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Here's that word, hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. He doesn't say be quiet about it. He doesn't say don't say a word about their sin, about their, about their beam, their, their piece of wood. He says, no, put your own mask on first. Then address somebody else. And the last one, remember the good news of the gospel. That's what should drive us, that's what should motivate us. The gospel is this, Tim Keller says, we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believed. Yet at this very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Here's the reality. You can't be yelling war eagle and claiming that's your allegiance while you're walking down the street at Disney with an FSU tattoo on your thigh. It just doesn't make sense. It's confusion. But this isn't even, that's not even a perfect illustration because there's not even confusion here in Corinth. These people are in sin and they're just saying whatever about it. Who are you to judge? They're just being defensive about it. They're, I'm gonna live my life, be a part of the church. You can't tell me what to do. You're not perfect either. And Paul's going, okay, this person has this attitude. It's gonna kill the church. And it's probably killing their own soul. So it seems like a drastic action really isn't because it is a drastic situation though. So we're gonna tell this person, hey, like, as long as you're married and as long as you're married and you're going out with this other woman, like, you invited me to dinner. I'm not going to dinner with you guys. I love you and I'm sure she's a nice person, but I'm not going to dinner with y'all. Are you kidding me? I'm like, 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 I'm not going to dinner. That's, a, that's, like, that's approval. You and I want to go to dinner, and we'll talk. I, I want to know what's going on, but as long as this is going on, man, I, I'm, I'm not touching that. I've had, to tell people, I've had to tell people I won't do their weddings before. Because attending a, attending a wedding is not a neutral statement. I'm not going to do your wedding because she's an unbeliever and you're a believer, and that makes zero sense. And the Bible forbids it. So I wish you happy ever after. Mine ain't coming. It doesn't mean I think I'm better than you. It means that I take this seriously. And I would hope you do the same for me. If you're in my life and see sin that's non-repentant, that is stubbornly being continuing, that's, I guess we could say continues stubbornly in my life, that sit down with me with one or two people. If I'm still not receptive then, sit down with me with a few more people. The elders of the church, and then, if not, then disfellowshipped until there is repentance. And I would hope for all of us that we're the first one in line to walk with them when there is repentance. That we're the first ones ready to go. Like, we're the first ones ready to sit down again when the stubbornness finally goes away and the actual agreeing with God about their sin and their need to repent and return to Christ actually happens. We're the first ones in line. 
Why? Because we never did this out of judgment. We did it out of love. Because we care for your soul and we care for our mission in Tallahassee. Does that mean if you're not perfect, you should never walk in these doors? Actually, it's the opposite. This is a place where redeemed sinners come to gather together to hear the excellencies of Christ and to pray together and to sing together. We also have a witness to the watching world. And we have souls to care for. So as the people of God together, we love having guests here, we love people, have people that aren't sure on the fence or there, we love all of that. But to be a member of this church means you're a part of a fellowship, a community, a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a, a, a light city shining on a hill. That's not about America, that's about the church. The word city shining on a hill, that we're to let our light shine before others so they may see our good works and as a result glorify God in heaven. We can't reach a world we look like. We can't reach a world we think like. Can't reach a world if we value what they value because distinct people point to a distinct God. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word, even the tough passages. We're thankful that one thing every Christian has in, in common in this room is that we once were lost, but now we're found. We were in darkness, now we're in light. We were dead, we were made alive in Christ. So we do not believe that we are in better standing based on our morals than anyone else. We believe that our standing is based on the perfection and life and death of Christ in our place. So I ask that now that we'll be so driven by that and that we'll be so believing that good news of the gospel that we want to be for others in our same Christian family to live a life for you that glorifies and honors you and that we want others to, that are outside of the Christian family to see a difference in people because we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life and that we are from a kingdom that is not of this world. We ask you to help us to live like it, that we are quick to ask for forgiveness because we know you're even quicker to forgive. And we're thankful that there is more grace in you than there is any sin in us. What great news. We thank you for being such a loving father, our holy father, who loves his own glory and the redemption of his people. We thank you for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now let's stand and sing some good news together.